wanted to uh, hit on a couple of points. I have a tendency to forget everything else once I start preaching, and I'll get to the end of a message, and I was supposed to have reminded you of, of something, and I've completely forgotten it. I was supposed to say something else, and it's gone. It doesn't even matter if it's in my notes, frankly. By the time I get to that point in the message, it's out of there. So I wanted to uh, just remind you of a couple things at the beginning of our time, and uh, one is what I already said during prayer time. I would encourage you to uh, invite your friends to the resurrection service. It's an opportunity where um, they will feel more comfortable going to church because Easter is a Christian holiday, and, uh, and, and that's kind of a tradition that a lot of people have to be able to go. Even if they don't really believe it, they don't really know what it means, they're willing to go to church on Easter Sunday. So take advantage of that and uh, invite them and, uh, and use that as an opportunity to uh, make that contact. Maybe you've been wanting to uh, share with that person. You've been wanting to invite that person. You've been wanting to uh, continue a conversation on um, spiritual topics with them. It's a great opportunity, super easy uh, for you to do, and, uh, and then we will uh, be proclaiming the gospel that week, as we do every week, but particularly on that Sunday, it's going to be uh, made, made clear and the main course in, in plain language. Sometimes we as Christians, we talk about the gospel from a number of different directions. We develop our own vocabulary or we have vocabulary that's given to us straight from Scripture that, that the general populace doesn't understand. And, uh, and this is an opportunity where uh, we will um, try to speak the gospel as clearly as possible to, uh, to everyone who, who comes so that even if they've never been to church, even if they don't know uh, any kind of our normal language that we've developed, uh, this is an opportunity. And so we want to be inviting our friends to that as well. I would encourage you to be praying for that time because it is that unique opportunity where the gospel is going to be uh, um, uh, proclaimed as clearly as, uh, as uh, by God's grace I will be able to do so. And we want to ask God to use that gospel proclamation to draw many to himself, that the Spirit of God would drive it right into their hearts, that he would open their eyes, and that he would save sinners that day. So I would encourage you to be praying for that time as well. This is, this is a good time in our church calendar to be able to do that. I would encourage you uh, as well that, um, we, and we don't talk about it a whole lot, but we have an evening service that uh, goes on in the fellowship hall at uh, six o'clock. It goes from about six till about seven. We usually bust out the hymnals and we'll sing a few hymns and then uh, we'll have about, about 40, 45 minutes of preaching. And, uh, and what's interesting that I've noticed and others who have attended the evening service have noticed is that there's a tendency for us to hang out longer after that service than we do after a morning service. Uh, and, I, and maybe that's because, you know, lunch, you know, and, and things are going on at home and, and we've got other plans. But there's, there's a laid-back uh, sense to the evening service, not because we don't take it seriously, but because we've gotten to the end of the Lord's day, we've heard the preaching in the morning, we've had time together as family, and this is a great opportunity for us to uh, be together um, in, in that kind of a, a setting. Uh, we get to sing a lot more hymns than we normally sing here, which I love. And uh, we get to hear the word preached again. And so it's a great way to close out your Lord's Day. So I would encourage you uh, to that end. And, uh, and tonight, um, Stephen will be preaching. And uh, so I would encourage you to, to attend uh, uh, for that. That's a regular thing we do. We just don't talk about it all that much. And I would, I would like to change that. So you've got your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 21. We're continuing on in uh, the account here regarding Abraham. And we remember that just in the, the last paragraph, we saw that Isaac was born, and, uh, and we saw the response 
of Abraham and of Sarah in that, and particularly Sarah who was, uh, was rejoicing that God had made her to laugh, had given her laughter. So the baby has been born. Well, what happens? We continue the story starting in uh, Genesis chapter 21 and verse 8. The child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah, the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, uh, excuse me, but Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water of the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot, for she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and She saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me. And I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba. 
because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Let's pray. Father, once again, we come into your presence in this way together today, rejoicing that we have entrance by means of Christ's blood and sacrifice for us. And we rejoice that we have your word open before us, that we have this very communication from you to us, inspired by your Spirit. And we pray, Father, that uh, during this time and these next few minutes that you will minister to us through this, your word, that you would be pleased to add your blessing to our time together, that your spirit would minister in our hearts. Help us to see what you have for us here. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I've entitled this message, The Lord Provides, and really there could be an extension to that title, The Lord Provides in the Mundane. So the question I want us to think about for a moment this morning is, what do you think about the mundane things of life? Mundane, everyday things of life. Those times when nothing exciting is happening. Those times when nothing special or apparently very important is getting done. Just the everyday mundane things of life. Those days when uh, they're, they're pretty much like the days that came before. And we expect they're pretty much going to be like the days that will come after. What do we think of those days? Well, different people feel different ways about it. But in our, in our culture, we've developed the notion of hump day. We call Wednesday hump day. And of course, that's the notion that you, you, know, you, you, you start out your week refreshed from the weekend and, and you work on Monday and you know, everybody hates Mondays and all that. And then, and then Tuesday is hard work. Wednesday, though, you're starting to tip over and you're starting to head on the downward slope. The weekend's coming, right? So uh, in our culture, we, we have the idea of hump day. I think it's something to celebrate midweek to get us to the end of the week when the weekend happens and when real life happens. I was uh, looking at some, uh, this topic, you know, reading, reading a little bit about it, and, and of course memes always come up. That's a whole genre in our day and age, and there were a couple of memes that were fabulous. Uh, one of them said, um, it showed a person with his eyes squinty like this, and, and it said, if, if you squint, you can almost see Friday, you know, because that's what you're looking for. You're looking for Friday, right? And then there was another one that said, uh, nothing ruins your Friday quite like someone telling you it's actually Wednesday. <laughs> I, I thought that was, that was pretty good. But what's, what's, what's the point? The point is that we're looking forward to that time when excitement happens again. I mean, it's just a work-a-day week. Wednesday and is kind of like Tuesday, and, and, uh, and it's just kind of humdrum. It's nothing very exciting. It's kind of mundane. Well, we've gotten to the point here in the story of Abraham. We've gotten used to the anticipation all the way back from 
from chapter 12, the anticipation of the birth of his child. And there's been this obstacle, and there's been that disobedience, and the, the trail has gone hither and yon uh, during that time. And we've been looking forward, we've been anticipating the birth of the child. Well, the birth of the child is in the first paragraph of chapter 21. They've, they've got this child. And what's going to happen in their lives now? Well, we're going to see that uh, there actually are some pretty mundane, normal, low-key experiences that happen here. But as we, as we look at these passages, we remember that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. And so that means that passages like this that, that, uh, that, that, that may seem like just sort of the mundane goings-on of a family are profitable for us. I think as we look at these two uh, instant instances that happen in their lives, we will see that actually God is providing for His seed right in the midst of and even using the mundane things of life. Kind of to build up speed to where we are in our passage, we want to <clears throat> remember about the promise of the seed. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, of course, and you remember sin has entered the world. Uh, judgment is upon the man and the woman, really the curse is upon uh, the, the earth as well. And, and, and uh, during that time, right at the very moment when sin has entered the picture and everything is kind of broken and, and God is coming and He's rendering judgment, even in that very moment of judgment when He's, when he's pronouncing the curse upon the serpent, in the midst of that curse, he, he pronounces that there will be a seed of the woman who will come and crush the head of that serpent, the one who introduced sin into the world, the one who brought temptation to the woman and, and, and thereby sin entered the world. God is going to send a seed to that very woman. Seed, meaning offspring, to, uh, to the woman who is going to come and crush the head of the serpent. And so Genesis creates in us this notion of expectation for this seed. God has promised the seed he will give it. And then we continue on the story, of course. We remember that uh, you go into the next chapter and there are, there are children born and, and, and there's great hope. You've got Cain and you've got Abel and you think this is the, one of them has got to be the seed. Well, then Cain kills Abel. So clearly it's not Abel because he's dead. Clearly it's not Cain because he's a murderer. And so we have in 425 the statement that Seth, the next child to be born, he's going to bear the seed. It will be, it, it, the seed will come through him. Seth is the one who replaces Abel, who was murdered. And so the line, the promise is going to continue. The one son murdering the other son didn't ruin everything. You've, you've got a third son who is born, and he will be uh, the, the, the one who will lead to the seed. And of course, the story continues on. People are born and die and live a long time and all those things, and then the flood comes. And you remember in Genesis chapter 9, God redeems, having redeemed Noah and his family uh, through the flood, he brings them out. And then in chapter 9 and verse 9, he, he says that there, the seed will come through Noah. The, the, the seed promise is still there. Yes, the whole population of the world, except for eight people, has been wiped out, but the promise of the seed is still there. The seed is going to come. And so we still have that anticipation, we still have that expectation that 
uh, we had all the way back from Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And of course, you turn to Genesis chapter 12 and verse 7. And, uh, and we have here the beginnings of uh, God speaking to Abraham and calling him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. He makes this promise to him. And one of the promises that he makes here in 7, chapter 12 and verse 7, he says, Then, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. To your offspring. Offspring is our normal word that we use for seed. It's the same word, seed. And God is going to bless that seed enormously. The seed promise continues. It was given all the way back at the the time of the entrance of sin into the picture. That seed promise is carried through beyond, beyond, beyond murder beyond flood, uh, beyond everything else, the seed promise remains. And of course, we know that in the story of Abraham, the seed promise continues despite there being no seed. Despite the fact that this couple is growing in age, they are unable to have a child, and yet God has said, you will have a child, the blessed seed. And so now, that, that expectation has sort of driven us all through the Abraham story from 12 until the beginning of chapter 21. We've had that anticipation, and now the child is on the scene. The seed is here. He has been born. The promise has been fulfilled. The, the, the old woman for whom it was impossible to bear a child has, has born a child. And we see the celebration of that in the beginning of chapter 1. The, the, the promise of the seed was made in the beginning, and the promise has been kept. And now the seed is on the scene. Now that he's on the scene, the question is, what will become of him? What's going to happen? Well, we see in our passage, uh, the first paragraph that we look at today, and uh, starting in verse 8, we see that uh, God provides not only the promise of the seed, He provides the protection of the seed once the seed is on the scene. And so we have what we read here about this, this uh, incident that goes on between, between Sarah and Hagar. Once again, there's struggle within the family. Once again, there, there are problems between Sarah and Hagar. And more specifically, the problems are represented in Isaac and Ishmael. That's where the fight really happens. And so you see there in verses 8 and 9 of Chapter 21, the child grew up, the child was weaned, which means the, prob- the child is about three, probably. They tended to wean uh, later in, in, uh, in those days, typically than we do now. There are still other cultures that follow that way, but it seems like he's about three. And at that time, the weaning of a child is a great celebration because the time of infancy is there's a super high mortality rate. And so uh, the celebration of the weaning would be a big thing because the child has survived, and particularly this child, born to an old man and an old woman who's been promised for so long, anticipated. Now he is being weaned, and so he's being celebrated. And of course, Abraham, being a good dad, being a good and rich dad, throws this huge feast for his son. He's celebrating that Isaac has been weaned. They have the child. The child is healthy. And so uh, you have this party where the child is being celebrated. It's wonderful. It's glorious. But during this party, you've got an interaction between Ishmael, the older brother, who at this time is probably mid-teens somewhere, 
13, 15, in that ballpark. And he's laughing at Isaac. We don't know uh, what exactly that means. It literally is the word laughter. It's Isaac's name. We've heard the story come up or the, the reference to laughter for all of Isaac's story. But here you have the older brother laughing at the younger brother. And it seems like there's something malicious about it. It seems like there's something that's unfriendly. It's not as if they were just teasing together and they were playing and having fun. There's something that makes Sarah look at it and see a problem. And actually, Paul, in Galatians chapter 4, says that the older brother, the the child of the flesh, was persecuting the younger brother, the child of promise. And so there's something going on here in this laughter that's mean. And, uh, and Sarah picks up on it as, as uh, mothers are wont to do with their children being mistreated. And she picks up on the fact that Isaac is being mistreated. And so in verses 10 through 13, we see that she goes to Abraham and she makes this demand, cast out this slave woman with her son. Get her out of here. And you, you hear the derision in the way she talks, this slave woman who has been uh, Sarah's servant for all these years. The, this is the same slave, that slave woman, who was, who was the one that came to mind for Sarah when, when she was thinking that, well, maybe I'm the problem and can't bear a child. We know the child is going to be born uh, as Abraham's child. Maybe here, take Hagar. This woman who was originally Sarah's suggestion has now become this slave woman. And you'll notice that throughout this story, Ishmael isn't named either that son of that woman, the son of the slave woman. Even God, in referring to Ishmael, doesn't call him by name. Ishmael is, 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 is being set aside. He's being diminished. He's, he, he's, being, he's being put in a different place uh, throughout this passage, and Sarah starts with that for sure when she, she tells Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. She starts giving instructions. She starts telling Abraham what's going to happen. This has happened before. Well, in this instance, Abraham doesn't just go along with it. It says that he was greatly displeased. He did not like her suggestion. He didn't just go along with it. The thing was very displeasing to Abraham, verse 11. He was not happy with it. He, he loved Ishmael. Ishmael was his firstborn son. For the longest time, it was his only son. For these 13 years, these 15 years, while he's been anticipating, expecting another child, yet he's had this one all that time. And so this suggestion that she makes, suggestion in air quotes, is greatly displeasing to him. But very interestingly, God comes on the scene and speaks to Abraham. And he says in verse 12, Don't be displeased because of the boy because of your slave woman. Do what she suggests. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. Go ahead and send them out. Go ahead and and separate them from your family. And I'm sure at this point, Abraham's kind of uh, curious. He's wondering why. He's probably conflicted. Who knows? I don't know uh, what, what was going through his mind, but it says... Uh, God says to him, whatever she says, do, because through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Isaac is the seed 
of promise. Isaac is the one through whom the future seed will come. Isaac is the one through whom his seed will be named. And so, in God's mind, this domestic squabble is useful. He's going to do something with it. And so, uh, he tells Abraham, go ahead and send him out. In verse 14, so Abraham rose early in the morning. We've seen that as a theme in Genesis. Rising early in the morning is usually connected with obeying God. Now, that's a bummer for me because I don't like to rise early in the morning. <laughs> and I'm not saying you have to rise early in the morning to, to, to obey God, but we see that. It's, a, it's a, a note in the text that's continual. You've got Lot, on the other hand, who lingered, remember? But here, Abraham gets up. Even this thing that's distasteful to him, he rises early in the morning. He takes bread and a skin of water and he gives it to Hagar. He loads them up and he sends them on their way. But whereas he had given a massive feast for Isaac, remember the great feast? He gives bread and water to Ishmael. That's what he gets to survive on. And so he gives them their provisions and they go and and take off. And of course, what's going to happen when you wander out in the desert with perhaps three gallons of water and some bread? How long are you going to walk before you've got no gallons of water and the bread's either inedible or gone? You're not going to make it very far. And of course, that's, not, uh, that's exactly what happens. We see in verse 15, when the water in the skin was gone, she puts the child under one of the bushes. It's a little confusing for us. I'll pause right here. The, the word that's used for child here, in English, we don't, we don't really have exactly an equivalent word, but in, in Hebrew, it's, it's the kind of word that means the inexperienced one. So that even a Solomon, who was 40 years old, when he was, when he was becoming king, remember, and he, and he prays at that time and all of that, do you remember what he said? He said, I'm a child. I'm this. He used this same word. He's a 40-year-old man. So it doesn't just mean a particular age group like preteen or, or teenager or something. It has a broader meaning. But, uh, but nevertheless, here you've got this, the, the child is, is exhausted, dying of thirst, and hungry. And of course, Hagar is as well, but she takes him, she, she puts him down under the tree, and then she goes uh, a ways off because she, she doesn't want to witness it. She doesn't want to hear his crying as he dies. She, she doesn't, she, as a mom, she, she doesn't want to see her, her son go through that struggle. And so she's, she's kind of at the edge. She's kind of at the end. She lifts up her, lifts, lifts up her voice uh, in verse 16 and weeps. And then a miracle happens. Verse 17, God comes on the scene. God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Rhetorical question. But God heard the weeping. God heard the crying. God knew the situation. This wasn't beyond God's control. It's not as if, as if God needed to be called in to do something about a situation he was ignorant of. That's not God. But she's weeping. He comes on the scene and asks, What troubles you? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. God has heard even this 
Even this child, though he doesn't call him Ishmael, he calls him the boy. But nevertheless, he has heard his voice, his crying. He has heard his plea for help. And so he comes on the scene, and we, and we read there in verse 18, Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. God says, stand up. Get out from under the tree or the, the place in shade where you've been hiding and, and go get him, go, go gather the boy up and continue on. I'm going to make a great nation out of him. He's not going to die here under this tree. I will make a great nation out of him. I'm not done with him. Yes, he's been cast out, and we know. We don't know if Hagar knew. We don't know if Ishmael knew. But we know he's cast out because God said, listen to her voice and cast him out. Nevertheless, God steps in and he's going to provide for the boy. He's going to make him actually into a great nation. And so we see there that God steps in and acts on behalf of the boy. Verse 19, God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. Can you imagine anything better when you're dying of thirst than to see a well of water? Can you imagine anything better when your child is dying of thirst than to see a well of water? And so naturally, she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy to drink. So God opens her eyes to what was already there. He didn't go and plant a new well. It says He opened her eyes to see what was already there. There's, there's fodder in that uh, for us to think about, about how, how God... Uh, so often we're trying to think through an issue, we're trying to think through a problem, we're trying to resolve something. We see no end. We see no way out. That does not mean there is no way out. God can make a way out. God can open your eyes to a way out that was there all along that never occurred to you. And that's what happens in this situation. So anyway, the boy gets to drink. We see verses 20 and 21. God was with the boy. Still calling him the boy, though. But God was with him. He grew up lived in the wilderness, he became uh, 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 skilled with the bow, and his mother uh, went and took a wife from among the Egyptians, her own people, to provide a wife for him. And so we've got this situation where the boy has been protected, he's been provided for, he's been, he's been cast out though. Why is that? Why is this story in here? What, what's the story about? Go back to Genesis 3, and what have we talked about? What is the story primarily about? It's about the seed, and he is not the seed. In fact, he became a competitor to the seed. That somehow in Sarah's mind, she saw the situation, and she thought, Ishmael is going to be a problem for my son, who is the one who's supposed to inherit. He's the promised seed, not Ishmael. And so, so even though she, in her own uh, perhaps bitterness and jealousy and, and anger and, and all that was going on in her heart, she wanted that child gone, and she wanted that woman gone. Whatever her motives were, God steps in and He says, okay, do what she said. Not because God had the same motives. Not because God was bitter at the woman. Not because God was bitter at the boy. Not because God was jealous in any way. Because He was accomplishing something greater. And what was he accomplishing? He was removing a threat to the seed. So with Hagar and Ishmael out of the picture, 
The way has been opened up for Isaac, through whom your offspring will be named. He is protecting his seed. Now, he didn't just cast him off and squash him. He didn't just send them out into the desert and say, well, they'll die in a few days and then that'll be that. No, he provided for the boy. He actually came and spoke to the woman. He, he provides for him and, and actually he, he makes him into a great nation. So it's not as if he just squeaked by and walked into town uh, on his last legs and then lived as a, you know, lived as a, uh, a person barely surviving for, for another 30 years. No, God provided abundantly for him, but he did so out of the way because he was clearing the path for the seed. And so we have in this first uh, section here an interesting action of God where he's clearing the path for the seed. What about the second paragraph? What about the second section here, this treaty with Abimelech? Well, this is another mundane goings-on. The first one was about this domestic squabble between, between two moms and their boys, and, and God was... God was protecting the seed in that instance, but now we've got a squabble not between two moms and their boys. We've got a, a squabble between kind of two warlords or, or uh, Abraham and, and, and King Abimelech. And we're going to see that God is, in this instance, providing a place for the seed. And so you look at verse 22 through 24 there, and you see that, that Abimelech is concerned about Abraham's growing wealth and influence, that God is blessing you in everything that you do. Okay, that's not just way that, you know, that's a good thing for you, wonderful, God is blessing you. He's saying, no, that's a threat to me because Abimelech, who is the king of this place, sees Abraham's growing influence and, and, and wealth and, 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 and strength to be a threat to his nation. And so he doesn't even just go himself, does he? He takes the commander of the armies. He takes a general with him, right? And so he's got kind of the joint chiefs of staff there with him for this meeting, uh, because this is important. This has become a, a military issue. It's not just a conversation between Abimelech and Abraham. And so Abimelech has seen a threat, and so he, he wants uh, Abraham to make with him a, uh, to, to a treaty, to swear an oath of non-aggression. Let's agree with one another that we're not going to get into a fight. Let's swear an oath together so that we can remain at peace. And of course, Abraham does that. We see there in verse 24, and Abraham said, I will swear. Sure, I can agree to that. Now remember where he's living. Remember the stories that have come before. Remember the fact that, that Abraham gets to live where he lives because of the goings-on with Abimelech earlier. Remember when, when Sarah was, was given into his household and, and the illnesses that happened and all that, that kind of stuff. The, the upshot of all of that was that Abraham got free roam of this land. You get to live in this region, wherever you want to go. Well, he does. And so now Abimelech begins to question perhaps whether that was a wise thing to do. So he wants to make this, this oath together, this treaty, and indeed they do. We move on, move on to verse 25. There, uh, there arises a squabble between Abraham and Abimelech over uh, something that had been done with a well. Again, we have reference to a well of water, and in the desert, a well of water is an important thing, and, and here there's a squabble that Abraham comes and he reproves Abimelech over something Abimelech's servants had done with this well of water. Maybe they were, maybe they were keeping their flocks of sheep too close to it, and, and Abraham couldn't bring his in, or, or who knows exactly what had gone on, but there was a squabble. Abraham comes and he reproves him, and Abimelech's a little bit defensive. 
And he says, I, 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 don't, I don't know who's done this thing. <laughs> and then he says, the first I've heard of it, and you didn't mention it to me, so I didn't know anything about this. And there's this ongoing squabble between the two of them. And so, we see in, in verse 27, it's going to be resolved by means of a covenant. So Abraham took sheep and oxen, gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Probably similar to the covenant we've talked about before, about cutting the animals in half and walking between them. It's a symbol uh, in, in putting those animals to death. But there's more than that. It's not just that covenant that they make with each other. There's something beyond that. Abraham goes and he gives these seven ewe lambs to sweeten the deal or to, to make a point on top of this. Not just these animals that have been brought and probably killed and with the blood and they've walked between them and all that kind of stuff, but he also gives these other seven ewe lambs to prove that this is indeed my well. I dug this well. So he wants to maintain uh, that good uh, grace between the two of them. And so Abraham takes these seven ewe lambs and he brings them and you hear the re repetition of seven ewe lambs. Right, Abimelech says to him, what's the meaning of the seven ewe lambs and, and all that? And, and then Abraham answers and says, well, the seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. This is my well. I dug this. Yes, it's in your land, Abimelech. But this is my well. And so they make an agreement uh, together. And Abraham sweetens it by uh, giving these seven you lambs. Therefore, verse 31, the place was called Beersheba. Beersheba means either the well of an oath, they've just made an oath together, or it means the well of the seven, the seven ewe lambs that were given. So Beersheba is an important place, and, and this is the way it gets his name. It's called Beersheba because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. So Abimelech and Phicol, uh, they go home, they're content, they, take, they, 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 they pack up and they go back home. And look at verse 33, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, plants a tree there, it's a symbol, it's a symbol that this is my land or that this is my place, it provides shade, it would be visible from a long way, it's an important thing, it's going to grow and it'll be a, a, a testimony to future generations that this happened. So he plants this tree and he calls there on the name of the Lord and he, he's, he, he's, he's, he's praying and proclaiming God's work in his life. And here particularly, he calls on uh, the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And so Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Abraham continues to live there a long time. So here's another, you know, sort of a mundane occurrence. I mean, you and I are not in danger of going to war with our neighbors. So we don't have them coming to us and saying, hey, let's make a non-aggression treaty. But it's a, it's a normal political thing. It's a, it's a mundane political thing between two rival powers. So what's going on? What is God accomplishing in this mundane thing? Why do we care? Why, why did God take the ink to write this passage down for us so that we would read it thousands of years after the fact? Why is it important? How is this useful to us, profitable for us? Especially this story about this the mundane political goings-on with treaties and, and all of that kind of stuff. Well, remember what the story is about. The story is about the seed. 
And now as a result of this, this episode that we have here, where does the seed get to live? Gets to continue living in this land where a tree has been planted. God has, God's name has been proclaimed in that place. And Abraham has his very own well. And in the desert, if you own a well, you can make something work. If you don't own a well, you're going to move on. God is providing a place for His seed. The, the, the promise all the way back in chapter 12 that, that Abraham, uh, your, your, your offspring are going to inherit this land. It's be, being fulfilled. It's beginning. We're seeing the first inklings, the hint, the scent of fulfillment as Abraham has this place in Beersheba, this well of water, a place where he can dwell. And it says he sojourned there many days. He lived there a long time. So the story of the seed is the story of Genesis. There's more to Genesis, but this thread of the seed helps us understand what's going on, that God has promised that that, uh, the offspring are going to be uh, those who bear very great blessing. And we see, continuing on, that now Isaac, who has been born finally, he's on the scene, and now has a place to live and even water to drink, which is good. He gets to continue on, and later on in 26 and verse 3, we see that the seed is going to continue through Isaac and his wife, Rebekah. 26 and verse 3, Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to you and to your offspring, Isaac, I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. So the seed expectation continues. It didn't, it didn't end with the birth of this uh, nearly miraculous child, Isaac, it continues on. The expectation continues on. And then we keep on going to the next generation. And in uh, chapter 28, we see that the seed will continue through Jacob. Jacob, it will be your seed who will inherit the promises. It continues on. And then, and then we, we remember the story of, of, of Jacob and his children and how they, they, they go down into Egypt and all that happens. And finally, they're in the land. We still are, are awaiting a greater fulfillment of this seed promise. They live in the land. They have the land, but 2 Samuel chapter 7, there's a promise made there. Remember, that's the chapter that's the Davidic covenant. God is making a covenant. He's making a promise to King David. This is hundreds of years later. And he says, to your seed, your seed, your offspring, I will establish his throne forever. We have the seed expectation. We're still anticipating something to do with the seed. It's still continuing. There's still a greater expectation that the promise made all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 that God was going to send the seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And we follow the line of the seed all the way through Genesis. And we, and we, and we read about David and we see that no, it's not David himself. It's going to be a, an offspring of David who's going to, whose throne is going to be established. He will be the seed. He will be the one who crushes the head of the serpent. We turn to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16. Paul is talking about the promises made to Abraham, the promises made to his offspring, and he says this in verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It doesn't say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and your offspring, who is Christ. And verse 19, why then the law? 
It was added because of the transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. The law was given to prepare for the offspring of promise, who is Jesus. And so we have this anticipation given back beginning in, in, in seed form, if you'll pardon the, the pun, back in Genesis 3.15, that there's going to be the seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And, and we follow this promise of the seed, follow this promise of the seed, and Paul, writing after Christ, says that seed was Jesus. How did Jesus crush the head of the serpent? Well, he resisted temptation, first of all. That wasn't enough. He was obedient to all of the law, always obeying God. But but that wasn't enough in itself either. He went to the very place of punishment for all of those who had broken the law of God, which is all of us. And he himself bore that punishment in his body on the tree. And why did he do so? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. In other words, he crushed the serpent's head. So that we who have faith in Christ are no longer under that penalty that, that, that all offspring of Adam inherit. Instead, we receive the benefits, we reap the rewards of what Christ, the seed, has accomplished. And actually, Paul will say later in Galatians that, that we are his offspring. We get to bear the, 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 the benefits. We get, to, we get to reap that harvest. That's the perfect seed. I forgot to say for point four, that's the perfect seed. All right, what are, what are some applica- uh, implications for this? I know we've gone through that quickly, but it's, it's helpful for us to keep in mind what Genesis is about. And it's about a number of things. But in this passage, we especially see God's protection and provision and giving a place for the seed. And so these mundane things, these squabbles, have a point. What are the implications? First of all, God is sovereign over all history. He directs it where He will for His purposes. Secondly, And kind of as a result of the first one, seemingly ordinary events, even those driven by selfish or bitter motives, are useful in God's hands to accomplish His ultimate plan. Seemingly ordinary, random, Wednesday afternoon events. The stuff you wouldn't even bother reading about in the paper. God uses those very things. Even the ones that are driven by selfish motives, bitterness, they're useful in God's hand. Another, another implication here, another thing for us to observe is in God's provision for Ishmael, we see evidence of God's tender care extended to those who are near Abraham. God explains why it is He blesses the boy. Because He's your son. Because He's connected to you, Abraham. He's not the promised seed. He's not the one through whom your offspring will be named. But He's your son. He's connected to you, Abraham. And so He receives great blessing. There's an implication for our own lives. The Christians are salt and light. And our very presence and godly influence blesses those around us, whether they realize it or not, whether they want it or not. And so if our culture continues to seek to drive Christians away entirely or into the dark, 
there will be consequences because the salt and the light are being removed. There is blessing in being connected with God's family. Final implication here. In his removal of Ishmael from the scene, who otherwise would have been a rival inheritor to Isaac, and in his providing a safe and well-supplied region for Abraham and his family to live, God shows that he will do what it takes to preserve the seed of promise. Three points of application, and then we'll be done. First of all, take heart that God is governing events in your life too, even the mundane ones. I heard a pastor one time giving advice to a younger pastor. The younger pastor was, was uh, distraught because he, he wasn't as good at preaching as he thought he ought to be, and so the pastor said to him, a Christian life is not built on wonderful, memorable sermons or conferences or mountaintop experiences. Normal, healthy Christian life is built on normal, mundane sermons that we sit under week after week and year after year. Now, for a preacher, that's encouraging. That's very encouraging because there are some mundane sermons. But what's the application for all of us? The day-to-day Christian life is more significant than the great things we hope to see or accomplish. We don't need a mountaintop experience. I enjoy them when they come. They're wonderful, but our Christian life is not built on mountaintop experiences. Our Christian life is not built on the camp high. Be encouraged at God's work in the mundane since most of life is lived in the mundane. And that's where God works. Second application. When God does provide for you in in wonderful ways, when you do see His blessing in your life, when you do see His abundant provision, when you do see Him work, give thanks and praise when you see Him providing in your life. Sometimes it's in big ways. Usually, uh, for example, food gets put on the table because you went to work last week. That's pretty mundane, and it's God's provision. So give Him thanks and give Him praise when He provides for you that way. Don't let the, the wonderful and undeserved blessings from God happen in your life without you pausing and giving God glory for them. Abraham, when he received the well, he called upon the name of the Lord. That doesn't just mean he said some words. He held a church service in a foreign pagan land to give thanks to God. And a final point of application. If you're not a Christian, don't let yourself be moved off the scene of God's redemptive work like Ishmael was. You've heard today about what God has undertaken to save sinners what He has done in the promised seed, what Christ has taken on. So, like Abraham, call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Put your faith in Christ who is that promised seed, promised all the way back when sin first entered the picture and comes on the scene and is on the scene now and you can put your faith in Him and you too will be saved. And you will be re-identified by faith. You will be 
you'll be re-identified as, as, as not in the family to the one who is the recipient of the very blessings that are ours in Christ. So what do we see in the mundane things of this passage? We see God working powerfully. We don't see the fruit yet at the end of Genesis chapter 21. We don't see what's going to happen, but we know because we know the rest of the story that God is building, God is doing, God is protecting, God is providing, and He is for you and me now in 2023 in our mundane lives. That's where we live most of our life, and that is where God works. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that we have you guiding all things, that our life is not about what we can wring out of it, what we can get out of it, the, the great things that we might be able to do to, uh, to have some fun in this life or to, 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 uh, to grab the gusto or, uh, or, or something like that, to make something of ourselves. But instead, we are those who recognize that you are in charge of all of history, that you are in charge of our lives, and in, in that process, you have brought salvation to us. Not only did you bring it to us once upon a time when we first came to Christ, but you are continuing to work in our lives so that even the mundane things, going to work on a Tuesday morning, disciplining our child for the 11th time that day for the same thing, or that conversation or that relationship that you wonder if it's ever really going to go anywhere, God works in the mundane, in ways that we cannot see, and we rejoice that you do. So, Father, I pray that you would send us out with that great confidence, seeing how you have worked in, in, in such powerful uh, circumstances and in such seemingly insignificant circumstances to bring about salvation. And we who have that salvation rejoice and praise you that you have done so. Send us out with the joy of that truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's going to be a family that would be up here to uh, love, would love to pray with you at this time. Uh, otherwise, God bless you all, and you are dismissed.